Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today in the pod, J.C. Deswan, the author of a new book called Seeking Virtue in Finance. J.C. has had quite a career, beginning in consulting for McKinsey and now in the investing business, as well as being a professor at Princeton. J.C. lays out a framework for how to balance having a successful career in finance while also helping to improve society. Really a fascinating analysis. Let's hop into it. Okay, J.C., we are live. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Alex. Cool. You're in New York. I'm in LA. Uh, You are a professor at Princeton. You work in investment management in New York City, and you're a newly published author. So congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, These uh, represent a lot of my passions. So I'm, and I'm excited for, this is my first book. So very excited about it. I mean, what kind of professor would you be if you didn't have a book, right? That's right. That's right. It took me 12 years to come out with one. So long time. Cool. So yeah, I'd love to hear what the book is and then let's get into who you are and what you teach and what your job is and, and all of that fun and how, and how you got to all of that, all that fun stuff. Should I start by talking about um, my background? Is that? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. Um, well, I'm, um, I grew up in Paris, French and American, uh, and uh, moved to the States uh, initially to play golf, of all things. Uh, I, uh, I, because in, in France, if you want to be a professional uh, golf player, you, you have to basically abandon school uh, sometime in high school. And, and whereas in the U.S., of course, you can play for, uh, for university, varsity right. teams. And there's a couple of great French golfers, uh, Van de Waal and John Rahm. That's right. That's right. And I, 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 used, to, I used to compete against uh, Van de Waal back in the day. Uh, in any event, so I, I wanted to go to college in the U.S., and, and I came here and um, ended up um, changing my mind about golf because I, I peaked when I was 15, and it's been a, uh, uh, a gradual decline uh, every year since. Um, but I um, did college, graduate school, and um, my interests uh, were history of art and political science in college. And then I uh, migrated towards public policy and economic development, eventually uh, moved to management consulting. So I worked at uh, McKinsey and Company. I had a wonderful time there. I, you know, I thought about it in some ways as graduate school in business. Uh, wanted to spend a couple of years, ended up spending five years. Um, just an uh, extraordinary firm and, uh, and still have uh, great ties to folks there. And, uh, but eventually I wanted to do uh, something different. And, and the two things that I was, was passionate about was investing and teaching. And, and that's what I've been combining for the last 12 years. I started uh, my investment um, experience uh, by going to a long short equity 
um, a fund dedicated Asia. It was a startup, uh, but I was very lucky in that the, um, the guy who was starting it hired me as his one analyst and he had a fantastic track record. We ended up being one of the largest funds in the world doing Asia back in uh, mid 2000s at the end of, um, of that decade when there was just a, a huge amount of interest in Asia and Asian equities. And it was back when um, if you launched an Asian uh, fund, a long short fund, you were better off being located in New York actually than in Asia because investors were still more comfortable uh, allocating capital to a hedge fund based in New York, even if it was Asia dedicated. So we would uh, stay up all night uh, investing in Asian markets and being on the phone with Asian management teams and, and we were commuting to the region. And um, then I moved and did uh, a year of macro investments uh, and then eventually joined uh, Cornwall Capital, which is the firm I've been at the last 10 years, joined my partner, uh, Jamie May there. And we're a, a very quirky fund. Um, we have an unusually broad mandate and it's uh, uh, in large part because at the core, there's a family office, which is my, my partner's family office. But we do anything from venture capital and private equity to global macro. And I've been uh, particularly involved in, um, in, in Japan in recent years in shareholder activism and in macro as well as in VC. So it's a very eclectic. And now separately, um, I, I taught as a grad student uh, back when I was at, at Harvard and uh, absolutely loved it. And it was something about it that it just, I thought it, it, sh it, it sharpened my, my knowledge base. It just, uh, it forces you to understand the issues better. I love the mentoring aspect and I knew I always wanted to go back to that. And, uh, and there's a point at which when I, I had done four years of investing across Asian markets, I believed that I, I, I was in the middle of um, a real transformative change where a lot of the balance of power globally was moving to Asia. And a lot of these markets were developing and financial institutions were developing very quickly. And so I thought I'd, I'd create a course around it. And it's not something that anyone would have thought of as a course before, but I, it was uh, Asian capital markets. And it was really about Asian economies and capital markets. And I pitched it and it worked and started teaching at Yale for a semester and then moved to Princeton where I've been the last 12 years. And so that, that's been my kind of uh, uh, portfolio of activities. And I, I feel very, very lucky that I've been able to pursue these things in parallel. What a cool story, JC. So uh, I'm interested in the piece when you're, when you're at McKinsey for a bunch of years, and then you said your passions were, you left to go pursue your passions of investing and teaching. And so you saw uh, some teaching when you were, you said when you were an undergrad or grad student, yeah. when you were a grad student, you got to, you got to see that. And so that started to fulfill interest. And then where did the investing bug come from? Just investing on the side and seeing that, oh, I, I really like this. You know, the, the different, uh, different uh, things actually. Uh, one was. I, I was always interested in um, international uh, economic trends, uh, so international policy, international economics. And I read a book uh, when I was in, um, in grad school, and uh, Investment Biker by Jim Rogers. And as you may know, Jim Rogers was uh, George Soros's partner in the Quantum Fund back in the 80s, uh, extraordinarily successful. But then he retired very, very young. 
And after he retired, he took uh, this uh, trip around the world on his bike and wrote a book about it. And it was absolutely fascinating because every country he goes through, and he, he goes through, um, I think, the five continents. And he, he writes about it with the conceptual lens of an investor. And I thought that was um, just incredibly thoughtful, the way he looked at things. And, and it just spurred me to, to think about this as a, as a career. So that, that was really the starting point. Um, and then there's another piece to this, which is in the 1990s, uh, there was more and more research linking economic development to the development of financial institutions. And I, that really was fascinating to me. I like the idea of uh, finance as a tool for economic development and as a way to, uh, to foster prosperity. And, and I actually thought that becoming an investor would allow me to push that forward and to be part of that. Uh, now, in reality, it took me about a couple of weeks, I think, uh, doing long short equity to realize that I would have literally zero impact. On, on economic development in society, but it, but in, you know it, it also spurred me to think harder about what in finance uh, can have positive impact on society. Right. Okay. And so that kind of leads us to the the next piece of your career journey here, where you start to think about this really interesting finance world. And in theory, yes, you're allocating dollars to great companies that can change the world. But you know, on one person, this one shop, like as you said, how much can can, can one company do? Um, and so you start to think about kind of the virtues of the, the whole financial industry. Yeah. It's, you know, for one thing, I, I, I started thinking harder about um, the social value of investments and are there certain types of investments that can have greater impact? One of the issues with long short equity is that you end up trading. It's, it's a bunch of institutional investors trading between each other, right? And so ultimately the, the impact, you know, maybe eventually you can have an impact on a company's cost of capital, but it's kind of very marginal. And also because it's such a, a diffuse, decentralized world on the buy side, individually, you have so little impact. But I, I wanted to think more systematically about, well, if you're doing private equity, venture capital, global macro, shareholder activism, what's the impact? And uh, so, so that was one aspect of it that was interesting to me. The other aspect was that when I started teaching, uh, it, was, it was very clear to me that a lot of my students were, so because I taught courses on finance, obviously they, they were very, you know, they were interested in finance, but a lot of them were concerned about being corrupted the minute they walk into Goldman Sachs or Citadel or whatever their first job is. And, and I wanted to be more thoughtful about about that, so I created a course on ethics and finance, and um, and it's also you know when, when I started teaching it, um, it was interesting. Like halfway through the first semester, one of my students, so I, I teach it provocatively as a freshman seminar at Princeton, um, and uh, one of my students came to me and said, "Why is it that we always focus on bad behavior? Why not focus also on constructive behavior and inspiring people?" And I thought, of course, she was right. Like, why is it that we, we never really, like, you know, parse out analytically, like, um, inspiring, like, ethical role models? And so I looked for the literature, couldn't find it. So I ended up uh, making it a, a project. And, and it was a small part of the class where I, I would bring ethical role models to talk with us 
through the years. And so Jack Bogle for many years was um, an anchor in the seminar. Um, John Whitehead was very involved for a number of years. Paul Volcker was very involved and quite a few other people. But I, I uh, looked for and tried to identify ethical role models, but I also wanted to make sure that I wasn't look, you know, I wasn't looking for altruistic people. I was looking for people that we can relate to. So, so people who are self-interested, ambitious, successful, uh, many of them successful in their, you know, in their own ways, but also were able to manage and to balance their self-interest with the collective interest, despite the relentless uh, pressure to conform to, you know, the norms, which is, you need to focus on, on short-term profits and short-term performance. And so, so that's been kind of the project that, that uh, morphed into, into a book. Wow. Very cool work, JC. I'm, I'm very interested. I wish I could have taken this course. <laughs> cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it, I mean, I'll tell you, it's so much fun to teach this course every year. I'm so excited in September when we, we start again. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm sure. And then just the ability to, to impact young people and, and share your expertise and your knowledge um, and all the work that you put into to writing this book. I mean, that, that's got to be so rewarding. Yeah. And, you know, I would say having taught for a while now, I've seen this evolution in my, my students. So I, I teach both um, so freshmen for, for the seminar, but I also teach seniors and grad students for another the course in, in spring on uh, Asian economies and capital markets. There's been this kind of interesting arc um, over the years where after the global financial crisis, I see a lot of my students, um, you know, two things. One is uh, many of them are more interested in being entrepreneurs, which is great, right? I mean, if you think of something that's going to impact society positively, then entrepreneurship, it's hard to do better than that. And so I, I was always a big fan of, of supporting that. And the other thing is, I think the global financial crisis has had an enormous amount of influence on, on the younger generation, on all of us, of course, but the younger generation in particular. And, and I see them being increasingly mindful of their role in society and, and asking, okay, what, what's my impact here? And, and that's, that's good. Um, and, and then, you know, I think that the pandemic is going to have just the same, you know, the, that kind of impact too. I mean, it's going to be like a transformative uh, event for, for all of us, but particularly for younger folks. Right. Yeah. Uh, transparency is a big trend uh, of the younger generations of wanting to see what their time, money, energy resources are, are, are going towards, not these um, yeah. opaque agreements with credit card companies and, and, and things that are very, very, very much one-sided. Uh, the, the future is very much uh, transparent, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and the reality is that, um, you know, I, I try to be, um, I mean, in the way I wrote this book, I try to be realistic. Uh, being in the industry myself, I have to, because I, you know, I, and I, I, I worked also in investment banking. And, and so I, I've seen, um, I, I understand the dynamics. Um, but it's fair to say that there's been a, a fair amount of improvement, right? Since 2008, I mean, for one thing, there, there's a lot less tolerance, I think, from society in general for very narrow-minded self-interest. And so there's a lot of pressure on companies um, to be more thoughtful, more mindful of their impact, uh, more transparent. 
and and you see also that interest coming from within the companies and and so as a result you see progress right so jc i'd love to hear uh, a bit more about the book and, and and some of the thoughts stories examples that it that it sets forward sure yeah so so the idea was to you know to find these role models but role models that we can relate to and that we can learn from and emulate Ultimately, I ended up writing about 60 or so individuals and firms in, in the book. And what I did was to tease out a framework. And the framework is, uh, what would a virtuous career in finance look like? Like, what would virtuous behavior look like? And, and essentially, I kind of disaggregate into four pillars, right? And so I can go through them real quick, but one of them is, the first one is, serving your customers faithfully, even when no one is looking. And, and the challenge, of course, is that in finance, it's often the case that no one is looking because finance, uh, more so than a lot of other industries, ends up being very complex. It's very opaque. And um, there's also a lot of asymmetry of information when you're dealing with, uh, and of knowledge base when you're dealing with retail. And as a result, there's just enormous opportunity to self-serve, right? And so this point about like serving your customers with their customers' interests is, is the most important. It's your, it's your mandate, right? Finance is, we're intermediaries, uh, we, we serve customers. And so there's nothing more important than that. Um, I'll mention quickly an example. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I, I write about people like Jack Bogle, for instance, and Jack Bogle is, you know, the towering figure uh, in the industry. And in some ways, the challenge with him is that he has had such enormous impact on the industry. And also, frankly, having had the privilege to interact with him, he is so not, he was so not materialistic that it's, it's almost hard to, you know, to, to try to emulate that. Um, so let me mention a hedge fund guy, right? Because, I mean, this is the industry I'm in. Uh, so I was particularly interested in finding like uh, an interesting example in that industry. I sat down with the heads of Prime Brokerage, the two largest uh, investment banks in, uh, in New York. So of course, uh, you know, as you know, Prime Brokerage uh, units are, are the units in investment banks that cater the hedge funds. And I asked them, can you point me to fiduciary leaders uh, in, in the hedge fund industry so I can research them, meet them, write about them? And both of them drew absolute blanks. Like, uh, and, and the challenge is that, you know, the, the hedge fund industry is, is um, there's not a lot of deviation in terms of the, the terms that regulate the interaction between the, you know, the general partners, so the fund manager, and uh, their investors, the limited partners. And so it was, it was hard to find folks that did things differently. But uh, this guy, Andy Okun, I thought was fascinating. I've, he's, he's a guy who um, came out of the legendary relative ARB, it's a relative arbitrage uh, trading group at Salomon in the 1980s. This is a well-known group. Lots have been written about that group. And he and his partner, Stephen Mazaluski, thought that uh, this was a little bit too sharp elbowed for them. So they, they left, created their own hedge fund called Watermark, also relative ARB. Um, but they, they did something that I never see in the industry, which is they said, look, we're not going to do the normal thing, which is to go to uh, the, the typical law firms uh, that, you know, certainly we work with uh, 
and, and that all the hedge funds work with to get the boilerplate agreement. We're going to take a blank sheet of paper and we're going to write terms that we think are reasonable so that there is um, a symmetry of interest. And, you know, obviously they have them run by lawyers eventually. But the thing is, they came out with terms that are very thoughtful and, and quite different, right? And if you go through them, you know, of course, they have low management fees and, and a few other things. But the thing that's most interesting is that when you look through the fine prints, um, the fine print tends to skew in favor of their investors, which is the opposite of what you should typically find, right? It's generally the opposite. Whether it's, you know, they, they have a bid ask spread, they, their high watermark actually grows with interest every year. Uh, they, they actually don't have the ability to gape themselves. So there are all sorts of things they do that, that are unusual. And the most fascinating thing they do is, you know how in the hedge fund world, the typical standard term um, or, uh, for fees is you get like one and a half to 2% management fees on, on the assets under management, and then you get to keep 15 to 20% of, of profits, right, as incentive fee. And they said it was unfair because um, in good years, you get to keep uh, capital, but in bad years, uh, you, you, there's kind of an IOU um, you have a high watermark, but at the end of the day, if the investor redeems, then they, you will end up taking a lot more uh, incentive fee than you should have. So he said, let's make this symmetric. We're going to keep a percentage of the profits every year we make profit. When we make a loss, we're going to give you back a percentage of your losses. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating. They did this for 20 years until a change in the tax law prevented them from doing that. Uh, but, it, you know, and so to go back, to step back from all this, it might sound pedestrian because we're talking about like the fine print and the terms and the, there's nothing heroic here, right? Particularly when you're comparing that to, you know, say, the nurses, right, that have been working through this pandemic, the, the doctors, the frontline workers that have showed up at work. Uh, but it, it matters. And it matters because in finance, uh, the one, uh, finance is pervasive, it, it affects all of us, and two, the fine print is very important in finance. And the deviation from serving your customers faithfully and the manipulation often happens in the fine print. Right. So anyways, that's the first pillar. Um, you know, I, I want to be mindful of, of your time here. I, I can mention uh, the three other pillars very quickly, and then, you know, we can take it wherever. The, the second pillar, I think it's very important, and that's where the industry needs to be more thoughtful. Uh, and, and this is the idea. It stems from a conundrum. And the conundrum is that you can serve your customers faithfully. So do really well with that first pillar and thus be very successful, right? Because if you're going to serve your customers faithfully, you're going to do well. However, the problem is that uh, it's often the case that you can serve your customers well but do that by extracting value from the rest of society, by extracting value from this or that stakeholder. And, and that's a problem because we were not thoughtful enough about that. And so the second pillar is really about serving your customers well while avoiding extracting value from the rest of society, ideally while creating value from, uh, you know, uh, for the rest of society. And there are all sorts of you know, things that, that have been interesting here that um, particularly in the investment world and we you know, talk about ESG and, and other uh, themes, 
But that's the second pillar. The third pillar, uh, now we're going inside the organization. And I think it matters. Um, it's less important because now you're talking about a smaller constituency and it's really your employees and your colleagues. So by definition, it's gonna be smaller than say the rest of society, for instance. But it matters that um, you treat your colleagues and your employees with dignity, you help develop them, and you help promote diversity within your organization and the rest of society. And I found some very interesting role models in that space who are really moving the dial. Um, so, th so that's the third pillar. And then the fourth pillar is, in some ways, that's the one that I was most interested in uh, because it's, it's, more, like it's, it's more about narratives of people that are interesting. And it's this idea that finance, it gives you a skill set that's really versatile, right? And, and it's about using that skill set to pursue collective interests outside of your main job. So it could be in parallel to your main job, it could be after you leave the industry. But I was looking for how people use their skill set, and not, not just their skill set, but also their network that they've developed in the industry, and sometimes the wealth that they've generated for themselves in the industry, and see how they're able to use that for the collective good. And there, there are a lot of you know, really interesting examples that I, I found and, and researched that, you know, frankly, are, are great models that I, I've learned from uh, that, that were super fun to, uh, to not only research, but often to, you know, get to meet when I interviewed them. Right. So that, in a nutshell, is the framework for, for the book. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, really, really delightful hearing about it all. And then hopefully the those people that you write about are trendsetters and the, they're setting the pace for, for where this, the, the industry uh, has to head into the future uh, and that those... Uh, good measures that they're putting into place will be differentiators from them and help their business uh, exceed the rest of the people that, that aren't setting forth those, those measures. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I'll mention that um, I went pretty broad in terms of you know, the, the folks I wrote about. It, it includes young people. I mean, it, it includes a 28-year-old woman, Erin Goddard, who's an accountant in Toronto. Um, so, and, and it includes a 90 year old woman also who uh, lives in New York and has done fascinating things with her career in finance. So it's, it's pretty broad. Um, and, and there are a lot of people that you can, you know, we can each uh, relate to. Right. And so that was going to be my, uh, my last question here about kind of, kind of uh, advice, you know, if someone that's, that's one of your students, they're just thinking about, you know, how do I get into the industry? Uh, yeah. And then, and then great. Then, then I can, you know, try to, uh, you know, be a, be a good shepherd and, 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 yeah. and, 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 and a good person. So what do you tell someone like early in their career about trying to, to find balance between, between these, these two narratives? Well, first of all, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, what do I, what do I tell them in terms of getting into the industry? You know, generally my, my, whether they're freshmen or, or upperclassmen, I, I actually tell them um, something that's incredibly cliche but I, I do believe in it, which is to follow your strong interests um, and not necessarily, not necessarily your passions, uh, perhaps your passions, but your strong interests. I, I have a lot of students that come to me and say uh, their default is they're going to um, major in econ, right? Because they feel like they're, they want to do finance and, and you need econ to be in finance. And that's not, and, and of course, I'm in the economics department. But that's not my, my sense. What I generally tell them is that 
it's more important to perform, like particularly in U.S. society, um, it's more important to perform, meaning to have a high GPA than to show that you were an economics major. And there are ways to, uh, you know, major in things that you actually really like and you're really passionate about and take the few classes that are important to show and to signal to potential employers that you're going to have a, you know, a base, a quantitative base, for instance, and, and some perhaps like key core classes that you need. Uh, but, but to me, the key difference is that if you take the, the classes that you really care about and that you're passionate about, you're ultimately going to have a higher GPA. And in our world, the GPA really matters. Um, and and I'll, you know, I'll give examples. Of course, I mean, like it's a different generation, uh, but I, you know, I studied political science and the history of art. And the CIO of our fund uh, studied history. Our head trader studied philosophy, right? And, and so they, obviously this is not, you know, if you look at the industry today, most people are not gonna have followed that path, but I, I do feel that that's important. Now, secondly, in terms of, you know, how do you think about the, the, these two narratives of being successful in the industry, which requires an enormous amount of dedication, right? And commitment. And, and of course, there's gonna be a huge amount of pressure for you to perform and to, you know, and, and to, to look, to, to hit the objectives and the objectives are, are often gonna be around short-term profit maximization in, in one way or another. How do you do that? Uh, well, I think it's when you start in the industry, it's uh, more important than anything to, um, to uh, strive to be excellent at what you do, right? To perform, to acquire the core skill set because your ability to change things grows dramatically with your credibility. And if you can develop credibility in whatever you're doing at the firm, whether it's investment banking, whether it's execution trading, whether it's you know, commercial banking or whatever, like you're underwriting loans, that is key. So I wouldn't necessarily advocate you coming in uh, to whatever like investment bank and wage your personal vendetta because it's just not going to work. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help the firm, right? So what I would say is, um, of course, seek to be mindful of your impact on society. And so I created this framework to, that provides a framework and goalposts. Uh, but there are two ways in which you can approach this. One is to pick your spots in the industry. The framework can be used to pick where you're going to land in the industry because the easiest way for you to create social value is to pick a spot in the industry where you're uh, by default are going to serve your customers' interests. And by default, you're going to be in a firm that has a culture that is dedicated to this and really mindful of their impact on society. Right. So if you tell me that you're going to start and, and work at Vanguard, then I can tell you you're going to create social value. That's not going to be you know, an issue. If you're going to go to a venture capital fund, most likely you're going to create social value there. Right. And so, so there are all sorts. So it, partly it's about picking your spot. Now, if you end up in the part of the industry where there's a little bit of a question mark as to, you know, the, uh, their impact on society, then what I would suggest is one, focus on developing your core skill set and, and on performing to develop your credibility. And two, at the same time, so if you, so say the investment banks, at any given point in time, they have priorities 
that are going to be aligned with the collective interest, right? And it turns out that right now, there's a lot of focus on this. And what are the big priority projects that these investment banks have? One is ESG, right? So you can focus on this internally. And, th and that allows you to align your own values with a bank priority. The other one is going to be diversity, right? After the surge in indignation uh, that we've seen uh, around racial inequality in the US, um, this is becoming a greater and greater priority. And this is another area in, in each of these investment banks that you can focus on uh, in parallel to whatever your you know, analyst responsibilities might be. And there, there are other uh, projects like this, but you can align yourself by, by uh, you know, focusing on something that the bank actually cares about at any given point in time. Right. Well, JC, I mean, I love the advice of just doing the best job, no matter what the job is, and that uh, performance will follow you throughout a career. And that's, that's fantastic advice. But this whole conversation has been so interesting and, and the advice has been really great. I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and sharing your story. Great. Well, Alex, thanks so much for having me. Uh, that was really fun. Okay. Talk soon. All right. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can help us is by leaving a review on iTunes and telling all your friends. Thanks.